And it's the biggest problem I think small companies have, which is mm-hmm. you have investors that, particularly the venture side, they think they know more than they know. Mm-hmm. And they try to manage the company. I don't have that problem. KKR invested in me, the operator, my team, and then the technology and the ideas. They don't get involved in that. They certainly uh, provide uh, guide rails and such. But um, so it, it's actually a better condition to be in. Mm-hmm. And they give us time to go do our job and they're supportive. When you have board members meddling with management, they better know what they're doing. And if they don't, but they think they do, that's a big problem. Welcome to MedSider Radio, where you can learn from proven medtech and healthcare thought leaders through uncut and unedited interviews. Now, here's your host, Scott Nelson. Hey everyone, it's Scott. In this episode of MedSider, I sat down with Kevin Goodwin, who's been involved in the ultrasound space for over 30 years. Well, at ATL Technology, Kevin founded spin-off company Sonosite, which launched the first point-of-care ultrasound, or POCUS, device, and was later acquired by Fujifilm. A few years after that, Kevin co-founded Equinos with the aim of creating a portable POCUS device powered by machine learning and AI to give even more accurate and detailed results. Here are a few of the things that we chatted about in this interview with Kevin. First, know your worth and stand by it. Investors who don't have a deep understanding of the medtech space can be blinded by buzzy competitors with flashy, low-quality products. Don't let them force you to lower your price or compete directly. Two, when you're looking for customer feedback on your prototypes, find people who are open to new ideas but take a lot of convincing. If you can make something that even the skeptics buy into, you'll know your product has a market. Third, there are pros and cons to both public and private investment. Public investors can sometimes work faster, but they also expect quarterly revenue predictions, which can be hard for startup. Finding private investors is a slog, but if you can bring in people who understand your product and give you the space to work, the opportunity is worth it. Okay, so before we jump into the discussion, I want to mention a few things. First, since you're listening to MedSider, you're probably aware of how expensive it is to run clinical trials. Anyone who spent time in the medtech space knows that you typically need to commit hundreds of thousands of dollars, oftentimes millions, towards clinical research. But it doesn't have to be that way, and here's why. Proofpilot is a new kind of hybrid clinical trial platform that enables you to run decentralized studies at costs that are 40 to 80% below traditional approaches. This is how they do it. First, you can easily design a trial in the Proofpilot Visual Protocol Designer using their extensive library of templates. Next, you can launch those trials to participants and virtual staff without any technical development. Skip the integration of disconnected providers because Proofpilot pulls it all together seamlessly. For example, you can recruit, consent, and retain participants, then schedule, remind, and collect data, often with minimal manual labor, manage site data in real time, query adverse events quickly, and review data and preliminary analysis within hours, all in one compliant platform. Get up and running quickly with an annual license fee and launch as many trials as you like with an unlimited number of participants. To get started, visit medsiderradio.com forward slash proofpilot. Again, that's medsiderradio.com forward slash proofpilot. For the MedSider audience, with an annual contract, Proofpilot will provide IRB approval for your first study at no cost. Some exclusions apply, so visit medsiderradio.com forward slash proofpilot to learn more. Okay, second, if you're into learning from proven medtech leaders and want to know when the new content and interviews go live, head over to medsider.com and sign up for our free newsletter. You'll get access to gated articles and lots of other interesting healthcare content. If you want even more inside info from medtech experts, think about a MedSider premium membership. We talk to experienced healthcare leaders about the nuts and bolts of running a business and bringing products to market. 
This is your place for valuable knowledge on specific topics like seed funding, prototyping, insurance reimbursement, and positioning a medtech startup for an exit. In addition to the entire back catalog of MedSider interviews over the past decade, premium members get exclusive Ask Me Anything interviews and masterclasses with some of the world's most successful medtech founders and executives. Since making the premium memberships available, I've been pleasantly surprised at how many people have signed up. So if you're interested, go to medsider.com to learn more. All right, without further ado, let's get to the interview. All right, Kevin, welcome to uh, MedSider. Appreciate you coming on. Oh, thank you. Happy to be here. Yeah, looking forward to this uh, this conversation and learning a little bit more about Econus, um, as well as just your your uh, your kind of background leading up to, to starting the company. Uh, so, with that said, let's not get too far into the weeds. But like, what's your kind of elevator pitch for you know your your professional background? Um, you know, prior to uh, Econus. Well, I jumped into private sector healthcare in 1980. I originally went to college, a liberal arts college, with an idea of going into hospital management, so working on the provider hospital side, but I decided I didn't want to do that. And then I went into private healthcare, joined American Hospital Supply Corporation back in 80, which was, at the time, arguably the Amazon of healthcare. They had the first automated uh, systems purchasing that you could automate purchasing through technology and uh, so that company was was actually very well respected. And then I went into technology after that. I went into a, in medical imaging. And then after that, I ended up in ultrasound. So I'm a 34-year veteran of ultrasound. That's really my, my life in, in, in private sector healthcare. And in particular, 21 years ago, founded the first ever point-of-care ultrasound company called Sonosite. So that company created what is now known as the point-of-care ultrasound space, or POCUS, and that's become, that's moved from zero of annual revenues in global ultrasound to 35% of global ultrasound hardware revenues. So back in uh, 98, 99, global ultrasound hardware revenues were 2.8 billion. Today, they're 8 billion. And 3 billion of that is this POCUS, point of care ultrasound, which is basically analogous to the movement of a technology out toward the patient, the bedside, and away from the centralized lab. So that, that is me. I'm arguably the founder of that movement. Got it. Great. Um, I, I love it. And Sonosite, I think most people that are listening are familiar with, with the company. And just to understand, I know like on your LinkedIn profile as an example, which which I've linked to in the show notes for this interview for anyone that uh, wants to check out uh, Kevin's LinkedIn profile. But I, I know you, you were the CEO, but were, did you also like start the company as well? Yeah. So what happened was in 97, I was appointed to head up a division, which was inside of ATL Ultrasound, which at the time was an independent NASDAQ listed company. And the CEO for whom I worked asked me to take over the, the, the project and figure out commercialization. So that was in 97. I used to call it the uh, Handheld Systems Business Group. And then uh, after a year of study, going around the world and talking to people about what would be the value of a hand-carried ultrasound device that was quote-unquote credible. And the reasons for that were technological. So the company ATL had a history of driving the shift from ultrasound image formation using analog circuits to digital. When they went digital, they got on Moore's law pathway, which allowed them to compress more and more circuitry onto a silicon chip, basically using line density improvements akin to what Moore's law predicted. And by the end of the 90s, they decided you could make a credible ultrasound device in a package that might be four or five pounds. And so we did. And so the question is, was there a market? And a lot of people were doubting Thomas's. I wasn't. I talked to a lot of people and, and used instinct, but ultimately what happened was we spun the company off. I led that spin off into a net. We went straight to NASDAQ. So 
in April 98, I was born on NASDAQ before I had a product, before we had an actual market, before we had revenue. So we didn't get FDA approval until September 99. And then we started shipping revenues in that the final uh, four months of uh, 99, which we did 10 million. And then we did 32 million in uh, 2000. We did 305 million in 2011. Wow. And sold the company for just under a billion dollars. But the enabler was the shift to digital, the shift to ASICs, which are application specific ICs. And in parallel with that, the a lot of work in material science on the ultrasound probe. So that market now has had, had classic market behavior because what everybody did, we start off with a five pound product. We put in place a product ladder of, you know, good, better, best, kind of like you see at General Motors with the, a rack of products that go from bottom to top. And then uh, at the time I left the company, our final product was called the export. It weighed about 65, 70 pounds and priced out at about $60,000. Whereas the original product was $21,000 and weighed five pounds. So what, it's interesting to say this because that marketplace all went up in size, trying to optimize performance and of course price to the user and larger screens and all that stuff. And now the wave is shifting again, so I believe, which is that Moore's Law enabled us to, with this new company, match up in performance with these middle, upper middle market products in terms of engine size, which is the channel count of an ultrasound device, and put that in an eight ounce package. So I, I, my first product at Sonos Light 99 was, uh, was one fifth as powerful as my current product of Echonos and priced out at five times more expensive. Okay. So, and then we have the, the arrival in 2012, the inflection point of uh, deep learning where you had tools you could actually use with deep learning that could work. And so ultrasound devices have always been made up of probes, of hardware, signal processing, and software, usually for the sake of operating the machine and also features. Now we have software in the form of AI that organically grows, gets better. And there's been some fascinating stories. So we're the first ones to take the lead in cardiopulmonary algorithms on a device, which is eight ounces that has now been benchmarked against a 60 to $120,000 instrument and basically found to be equal. So, you know, ultrasound is user dependent, it's patient dependent and all those things, but we have a machine that people are starting to change their behavior, which is very exciting. So we've got people at UCSF, Mayo, London, uh, all over the country now that are taking my machine at the bedside as a normal course of business, not when they need it, but they always want it. Hmm. So it's an every patient, every day model versus in the past, it was walk up, examine and say, all right, I think I'm gonna do an ultrasound, or I'll get one order. So we're, we're causing another shift. I mean, this new company, Echonos, is really about disruption 2.0. So everybody's going up and trying to maximize price. We went down and added AI, and we've got a product ladder now between 5 and 15K with AI that can proliferate up and down the ladder. Got it. That, that's super helpful. I'm, I'm sure we'll get into some of these, uh, some of the, the sort of the key lessons you learned kind of building, building and exiting uh, Sonosite over the past you know, 10, 15 years. But let's talk a little bit more about Econos. Um, right. What can you can you give us a, like a, a high level uh, kind of um, origin story, if you will, uh, and what made you, you know, what what caused you to kind of like actually want to dig in and want to work on this on this project after kind of leaving? Uh, Great question. I left uh, I left Sonosite post acquisition in March of 2014. Six months later, I wasn't saying saying to myself that I was going to go back into the medical device world. I wasn't sure what I was going to do. I was kind of just you know cruising along. And then um, I got a phone call because I made a comment on a blog and the blog comment had to do with Butterfly claiming they were going to bring out all this fancy AI and hardware one year later, to which I said, yeah, right. Good luck with that. 
Well, it turns out they never did. It took them another four years to come out with a product and they had no AI. But what happened was a deep learning group down in San Francisco saw my comments and called me and said, what do you think about using deep learning and ultrasound? I said, well, what is deep learning? And I spent six months studying deep learning. And I said to myself, this is going to drive the next 20 years of point of care ultrasound. So that's where I, that's probably where my strength is, is predicting the future because of my experience in the industry and an understanding of trends and, and needs of users, new need, you know, political needs. So what happened was I called up a guy from Sonosite, happened to be a Greek guy. And I said, uh, I think that AI is going to, is going to proliferate the way these devices are used that you could automate acquisition of the image, you could automate interpretation, you could automate um, physiological measurements. And then down the road, when big data arrives, you can connect to the big data and bring immense knowledge to the bedside right there and then. For example, you could study, and people are doing this, correlate the, the subset of parameters that are most predictive in an ultrasound image and connect that to outcomes, mm-hmm. right? And then when you do that, and we're seeing it happen, you can just get an image and the AI can tell you what you've got to deal with over here on the other side in terms of probable outcome. And that's that's very close, but very close now. So to do AI on a, in ultrasound, you have to have a data rich image. So you can't do it with crappy or low cost hardware. Hence these low cost products, these men's products like butterflies, they just can't deliver the goods. You need to have a, a data rich image. An ultrasound image usually has 80 to 100,000 data points inside of it. So my partner said, well, I can make you a really good ultrasound machine if nobody tells me I can't. And the problem is in this industry, everybody is loath to self-cannibalize, right? So he said, I can create a machine that's going to have 64 to 128 channels and fully functional. And we can make an image really, really well, which we did. So we combined the AI opportunity with the miniaturization, I'll call it frontier opportunity and put them together in a product. And then we started showing it to physicians live in August of 19. We got FDA approval in March of 20, and then COVID, you know, creamed the world. So we didn't do a lot of marketing and selling that year. What we did instead was product optimization. And then in March of 21, this past year, we had the product kind of right where we wanted it in terms of functionality and uh, quality, and the AI was plugging along. And so we made a tremendous move this year. We've seen uh, rapid unit growth quarter to quarter, and now we're in Q1, and we're looking at substantial rate of growth in terms of unit sales. What we've done is conquer the part of point of care that no one went after, which is cardiology predominantly. Cardiology was, a, was, a, was not a participant in the point of care ultrasound movement. They would buy the cheap products, the GE product, the old one and others just to take a quick look. But those are non-diagnostic, non-reimbursable, you know, not essential, if you will. I mean, they're better than a stethoscope if you're an expert. But if you're not an expert, uh, you have to actually know what you're doing to use these uh, devices. It's not an iPhone. So uh, nobody tells you what you're looking at and nobody even tells you whether you have a good image. Now, my hardware, you can put the ultrasound probe over the heart. It uses object detection, labels the heart anatomy. Hmm. And you can move the probe around in various ways. That you can't trick it. It'll tell you right ventricle, left ventricle, all those things. It also grades your image and tells you how good your image is. And then it guides you to improve the image. So you can then move to another algorithm called autosystolic, which is a 17 second workflow gets a very accurate ejection fraction. Now it's interesting because we took that hardware over to a big hospital in Greece and they were very suspicious and skeptical is a better word, uh, whether the hardware would perform at the level predicted. But then on the AI, they're like, yeah, right. You're going to, you're going to, an algorithm is going to do better than I know how to do for ejection fraction. So what happened is they watched the algorithm get better and better with time. And now they use it to check their work. Hmm. 
So when they're at the bedside, they say that that, that ejection fraction is 55%. They'll use our product, which has a 17-second workflow. You take one view, another view, pull the probe off the body, and there's a seven-second compute cycle. And we're taking advantage of the Qualcomm technology. They're the best in class for mobile AI. Uh, NVIDIA being the best in class for large-scale stationary. But that doesn't work in mobile. And so we've seen that happen. So you have this trio which grades, guides, and labels, and you have then the autosystolic. And now we just put in place a product that takes the work of a cardiologist, which is usually as much as 40 minutes when an ultrasound image set is taken to the heart. They come in, they do a bunch of point, click, and measure, and they put it into a report, and they, they dictate an answer. That's usually a 40-minute process. This machine learning tool does it in two minutes. Wow. And it's accurate. So it's actually been found to be, in some cases, more accurate than a doctor, meaning it's found disease where a doctor missed it. So that's the, that's the promise of AI. The promise of AI is making measurements accurate and fast, uh, reducing interoperator variance, which is a big problem in healthcare. So if you and I scan the same patient or two doctors scan you, they'll get different answers oftentimes. Mm -hmm. And AI takes that variance towards zero. And then it opens the door for a lot of other things that are going to be very interesting, saving a lot of time, uh, automating physician and other workload uh, and things like that. So we're very happy about this. But we, we had to have a piece of hardware that was non-trivial in nature, meaning it's just not cheap. Right. It's small, but very, very powerful. So on that note, oh, thanks for that explanation. It's clear like uh, you're, you're an expert in the ultrasound space after having kind of built that, that uh, Pico movement. But let's talk a little bit about like, like those, those formative years when you're, you know, you're, you're prototyping, right? Those alpha and beta units. You mentioned your partner um, asked you the question, why I can build this as long as you tell me I can't build it, right? How do you- well, actually, the problem was that where he worked and where anyone would work in this industry, if you said, I can match a $60,000 or higher machine and a product that can be hand carried in less than 10K, none of them want to do that. Yeah. yeah. Okay. They, they all want to go up market and get higher average prices and they don't care if unit sales flag where- what we're doing is going the opposite way and disrupting again. Got it. Got it. So you're, I, I guess, the company allows you to kind of, I guess, you know, sort of pivot on, on, a, on, a, on a more normal, kind of normalized business model, right? When you're not, you don't have to be cognizant. Well, of yeah, it was all formed. It was formed for that purpose. So it was right. formed to create hardware that could scale and then sell AI applications at the point of sale or after. So we've got a whole portfolio of AI applications coming in behind us. Got it. That do things of value for people. Got it. Yeah. So like, take us back to some of those early days, right? When you're, when you're building out like those alpha, even those, the, those beta units, like what are some of the key learn, like for other, other uh, device health tech entrepreneurs that are in that same boat and they're trying to, they're trying to balance, like how to, how to do this efficiently. I don't want to like over-engineer this thing, but I also want to, I also want to make something that's truly differentiating. Like what are some of the key, like one or two, like key lessons that you would maybe speak you know, or offer, offer up to that same, that same. Yeah. Customer. What goes wrong, what goes wrong. And we, we actually had more mistakes at this company that I did at my prior company. What goes wrong is you got to hire the right people who have the skills to do what you want to do with the product hmm. and then to do it in the way you want to do it. So we wanted this device to teach the user how to use it. That was the premise. I don't want to make just a pedestrian ultrasound machine, even if it's small and good, I want it to help the user learn how to use it. So that premise we had some malalignment at the beginning in our company where the wrong people were doing the wrong things and didn't do, do things the way we wanted to on the software user interface and AI side. However, on the uh, hardware side, the imaging ultimately had the fundamentals right. We just had to get it optimized and we had to get functionality optimized. And so I'd say that, uh, 
you really have to have alignment and skill and know-how and a, a belief on what you want to do at the very beginning. This is vital. Okay. At Sunsight, we start off saying we want to create disruptive, hot products, hot meaning highly designed value. So not just ugly ultrasound machines, but pretty you know, attractive ultrasound machines. I want to win design awards. I also want to make them very easy. And we did a great job of that over the years of simplifying ultrasound from many buttons to no buttons. Now we're on the verge today with our product of being able to take away with AI any user interaction with the machine. Hmm. So that's pretty interesting because when ultrasound, you have to push the beam into the body that's called depth. And then you got to manage brightness on the screen that's called gain. And we can automate that. We can also automate other things like the place, placement of a Doppler cursor, which our hardware has unprecedented functionality. You can measure a full heart echo, a full echo of the heart with my product, which you can't do anywhere in the world with another machine. <laughs> it opens up a new world. And it's interesting because that world's emerging now, which is you can now go into communities with our hardware and the AI we have, and you can find people with heart failure before they have symptoms. You can find people with valve disease before they have valve symptoms. And this is unprecedented. And we're told, like, for example, with valve disease, one in 10 people get a valve that need a valve. They wait until they're sick. And the reason is no one's looking at their valves. And so we're right there now. And then on heart failure, you got a lot of therapies coming out that can uh, open the door to uh, screening. So having people look at patients more routinely at the beginning of their healthcare journey at a particular age group or whatever. And you could find heart failure either, you know, there's two kinds of heart failure. There's heart failure normal and there's heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, which is even more scary because your ejection fraction is normal, but you have heart failure. And heart failure is a big problem from an economic and healthcare standpoint. So anyway, that's what is exciting is when you put that technology together, what it should do if it's really, really truly effective, it should open up new markets, new market expansion opportunities. Got it. Got it. And circling back to your point around alignment, right? Like some of the challenges that, that you had to work through, um, you know, at Echo, uh, Echo was, was, yeah. was it, was it, was it alignment around like what you wanted this, what, what you wanted this, this device to look like, or was it alignment around like the high level, like strategy for the company? Uh, it was what I wanted the device to look like. Cause that was a core element of the strategy of the company. What happened though, the engineers did what engineers often do, which is to try to drive to the MVP, the minimum viable product as fast as possible, which is not altogether bad. So what we did after that, we got to that base probably by August of 19, and then we iterated like crazy through March of 21. And now we're in a great position, but it took that call it 15, 16, 17 months of iteration to get us there. Got it. Got it. All right. Well, let's let, let's shift a little bit uh, and, and talk talk about uh, you know ra raising capital. I know you've done, you've, uh, you've you've raised a, a, a couple rounds for uh, for Equinos. Talk to us a little bit more about your experiences um, in, in in capital raising. You know, throughout your you know your thirty plus years and yeah, of, yeah, that's a good question. Space. So, yeah, yeah. So I, when I when I was spun out in Sonosite, nineteen ninety eight, it was not a good time for a small cap medical device, and we were pre product, pre revenue, pre market. So it was pretty abstract, even though instinctively and research-wise, I knew we had something. You had a lot of people telling me over the year and a half, this is going to change everything, which it did. But uh, we were born on the NASDAQ. So we went out and raised money in April, April 19 into a headwind. We had a lot of so-called experts saying the deal will never get done. And we ended up overselling the deal initially and then did a pipe later that year. So that was my first experience in public money raising. Hmm. 
And so I raised 160 million collectively in equity dollars at some site. I never needed more than 60. So we excessively raised, but that's what you tend to do when the money's out there and available, you tend to load up the bank. Mm-hmm. So that was one uh, experience. But then when you raise equity publicly, you, you have to sign up for the dance with Wall Street every quarter. Mm-hmm. And that's detrimental to startups. That's not really good for startups um, because you're trying to predict the future 90 days out that's highly unpredictable. So, for example, in our first full year of revenue, we tried to do $50 million in, in 2000 of revenue. We did 32, which I'm told is the upper 5% of med device companies. And we were slitting our wrists as if we failed. <laughs> so uh, we went from 32 to 45 to 76 to 100 to 300 in, in a cycle. So, you know, that's not so bad. I mean, but you would have, you would have thought we were, uh, you know, depressed because <laughs> quarterly calls can be depressing when you miss, you know, and, mm-hmm. and when you make, it's great. But we postponed profitability, which was a model that was somewhat controversial back then. Amazon was doing it, and rightfully so. We built the business, and we built everything but the profit engine, and then eventually the profit engine was expected to arrive. Now, in the private sector, I was fortunate KKR knew of me and the company, Sonosite, previously. They found out that I was raising money for this new venture, took a good hard look at it, and they said, we'll take the whole deal. So they, they'd give me $120 plus million dollars to get us this far. We, we did a debt deal in May with Kennedy Lewis, which is so a, a little unusual for a company of our size. And then we did, uh, we're, out, we're right now looking to close a C round. It's been harder than I thought it would be to uh, close a C round, given what we have and who we are. Uh, in our environment, you have companies like Butterfly that have raised a boatload of money and who went into the market via SPAC. Now, their business model, in my view, is highly questionable given what they're doing. And their stock price is going from like 26 to 6, hmm. which happened to me. It's on a site. That happens. And my stock price went from like uh, 32 to, to 11 or something. It just happens. You know, Wall Street is fickle. So uh, that's the, the experience that I have today is private sector money raising is harder because you don't have the pure liquidity of the public markets. You know, you don't, you don't, have, the, you don't have the ability to get out in, in an hour. Right. But um, I think that uh, there's a lot more value creation potential in this situation because private company benefit if you have a good owner like we do, KKR is excellent. Hey there, it's Scott, and thanks for listening in so far. The rest of this conversation is only available via our private podcast for MedSider Premium members. If you're not a premium member yet, you should definitely consider signing up. You'll get full access to the entire library of interviews dating back to 2010. This includes conversations with experts like Renee Ryan, CEO of Cala Health, Nadim Yared, CEO of CVRX, and so many others. As a premium member, you'll get to join live interviews with these incredible medical device and health technology entrepreneurs. In addition, you'll get a copy of every volume of MedSider Mentors at no additional cost. To learn more, head over to MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium. Again, that's MedSiderRadio.com forward slash premium.